I think a lot of modern outages, for example, are often more like a murder mystery where you need to find the suspect, like what killed our system today. And we're trying to play into that. Yeah, it's very much about framing it in that way. And then with the large amount of data that we have today, it's often very hard to just say like just a hard filter or or just a subset of data. We really need the search capabilities to, to make all of the data accessible in a reasonable way. Hi there, and welcome to Pod Rocket. I'm your host, Paul, and today we have Philip Krem with us. We're going to be talking about Elasticsearch. We're going to be talking about seams. We're going to be talking about how to use this great technology that has text searching. You can shard it. You can do all sorts of amazing things. So welcome to the podcast, Philip. It's great to have you on. Excited to get into things. So just to start off, what is Elasticsearch for people who are tuning in? Maybe you've never heard of it and they're looking, how do I organize all my information? Hi, everyone. Yeah, so that that is kind of like a common question. So Elasticsearch is a, a full-text search engine. If you're searching on Wikipedia, GitHub, Stack Overflow, behind the search box, there is Elasticsearch doing the actual search so you can find whatever is relevant on that specific platform. It can also take other forms if, for example, you order an Uber, it can do a geographic search to find what is close to you or various other applications just to, to find what is relevant in terms of text, geography, or various other attributes that you could extract from something. And then we have kind of extended from there. I guess a lot of people are familiar with Elk or Elasticsearch, Logstash, Kibana, which are all our products for logging and then we have kind of expanded from there by now we try to call it elastic stack because that's a bit more flexible in terms of naming and we do the full observability but also security system on top of full text search which we still do and sometimes it can be very hard for people to understand that we do all of these three um and they're always like so what are you doing now and are you still doing x and are you doing that new thing and and we're always like yeah we do all of those and we we keep adding more use cases because we think all of those are search use cases. Interesting. Oh, I can't wait to get into the eth picking your brain about what the eth is about, what should be search and what shouldn't be search because we're all just searching for information at the end of the day. Um, so yeah, it looks like we're it's a full ter- excuse me, full text search platform like you were just saying. So, being a developer advocate, have you been with the organization for a long time? And you just have a lot of experience with, with all these different tools. Sounds like you're really into the ecosystem. Yeah. So I've been with the company more than six and a half years, which is a long time. I don't think I held any other job for that long. But for example, I have somebody on my team who has been with the company more than nine. And as a company, we only started a bit over 10 years ago. So we have, I always call them the true dinosaurs. Um, we still have those around as well who were there from the start. And then... A lot of change in product and everything happened, so they they have seen it all. Yeah, I mean, now one reason why folks might be confused is the different products that you could, in in some essence, relate back to full text search. Very disparate and disjointed in the end phenotype because you can do so many different things. It's like you do one thing on one side of the moon and one on the other, but you're arguing it can really be boiled down to the same problem: a search, a text search problem. Yeah. So our our statement. It's always that while while the application might be a bit different, like it, the, the classic Wikipedia search is different than finding something in your logs or finding something in your security data. But in the end, 
you need to store data and the storing part is kind of the, the boring part. And what you always want to do is you want to find something relevant quickly. And that could be whatever Wikipedia page you're searching for. It could be your Uber ride, but it could also be like what, what took production down? Like what are the relevant events that we have collected to figure out what is broken right now? Or it could be, oh, there was a new attack on our network. What actually happened? Can we prove that nothing happened? Or can we figure out how bad it is? So all of those are searches to some degree to find what is relevant for that specific use case. So while the scenarios are different, the underlying problem is kind of similar because it's always you want to have this quick search on a large amount of data. And does that searching happen because of a pre-indexing sort of phase that is happening? Or are there a lot of like intuitive and really smart things happening at runtime? And some, I'm sure there's a combination, but... So there is, that, that is actually a very interesting point because historically, Elasticsearch, so, or maybe I should start one step before, for those who don't know, Elasticsearch is the thing that stores the data and then Kibana is doing the visualization and then we have various ways to ingest data. It could be Logstash, Beats, or Elastic Agent um, or APM tracing data. So Elasticsearch is storing the data and Elasticsearch has historically been very strong on the um, doing stuff at index time. So the the basic idea is why is the search so performant afterwards is because you do more work upfront than, for example, compared to a relational database. Um, so while a relational database stores the data and then maybe puts an index on it, Elasticsearch does more. It has this full analysis pipeline of breaking up text, for example, and extracting relevant values and maybe adding synonyms or even turning it into vectors. If you have, for example, images and you can extract like what is in the image in terms of a vector to search that. So you can bring the model to actually extract values and then search on like, not it's just not just text, but I think where, where we're headed very strongly is like you want to search in, in music or images or videos. And the, the idea is that you extract a model um, where you have a vector representation of the data and then you find something that is similar to, to those vectors that you have. That's the underlying thing. And search is generally uh, a, a big topic in the full text search ecosystem right now, which has been coming up for a while. So there, there is a lot of development there and search is still evel developing and evolving. Um, so coming back to the original question, initially it was very much about doing all of that or we're still doing all of that at index time, um, which gives you more power to do start the work upfront and then make the search faster afterwards. But it also means you have to do that work upfront and you need to kind of like know how your data is structured and how to work with that. By now, we also have something called runtime fields where we can extract more of that information later on. So if you say like, oh, we have this data, but we have a new question and we need to extract some, some other thing from the data that we already have, you can do that at runtime now as well, which can be very powerful if you have stored something or you didn't think about the question, you didn't store it the right way, or you maybe try to extract it the wrong way and the data is a little broken and you just want to fix it at search time afterwards, that is possible. Um, and the trade-off is, of course, the search will be a bit slower because you need to do more at query time, but you have more flexibility for later on. So we have traditionally been coming from that index time work and now we also have runtime fields which allow you to, to do more work at query time and you need to pick the right trade-offs, which is generally where we always say it depends uh, because there are so many ways to, to do things and you need to make the right trade-offs for your scenario. So if you know the structure of something, 
and you know that you will be searching on that a lot, you should still do that at index time. But if you indexed wrong, or if you a new question comes up later on, or you have something that you will only very rarely use, you might do that at runtime and it might make your life easier. So we want to kind of like cater to those different needs. I, I think one of the end takeaways that I'm getting from this um, is bring, bring us back to the basic principle that we're talking about a stack here. It's not one application and folks are coming in, they're like, oh, do you still do this? Like the reaction is not realizing that we're talking about a suite of services and applications that work together. And one one thing you said that was interesting is, yeah, you have to choose which, you know, are you taking the apple, the orange, and how much of each uh, to accomplish the goal that you need. Um, and just to be clear, when we're talking about the indexes versus the runtime streams, what two layers of the stack? I, I know you mentioned, I just want to hit it one more time. So it is it is all in Elasticsearch. So Elasticsearch is really the, the data store and and sometimes people are a bit confused and they're like, what is the database behind it? And there is there is no more database behind it. Elasticsearch stores that on disk or actually the library we are using is Apache Lucene and that is writing the data to disk and doing the actual search. Um, but it's really all there is. And then you have a, a REST or RESTful API that you query and then you can extract that information um, and you could see it in Kibana or you could use whatever programming language you want um, to either call the REST API directly or use one of our clients. So you have all the flexibility to build around that then. Slightly off topic, but you just brought up the, you know, one of the lower level technologies that powers uh, your organization. So I think one question that I've heard thrown around a lot is, what is the difference between Lucene, Elasticsearch, and OpenSearch? Yeah, so Lucene is the, the, the library written in Java that you can use. It's like 20 years old, more than 20 years old uh, by now. Um, and you can use that in a Java program, but it's it's like a library that you need to use the right way and you have a lot of flexibility. But what most people want is they want to have a bit of a higher level service on top. So they want to talk, for example, to a REST API because they might not be using Java and might not want to integrate the library. And that was is what Elasticsearch is doing. So you have the library that writes the data and does the actual searching that is Lucene. And then you have Elasticsearch around that that does the distribution and replication of the data. It provides the query DSL, the REST API. Um, so it is kind of like the thing you interact with around it, um, but it's writing out that data um, or the, the writing is part of Lucene and the core library. Um, and you could build your own applications around Lucene but unless you really want to build something very complex or specific, that normally is not what you want to do as an end user. And then OpenSearch is a fork from a two-year-old code base of Elasticsearch. So it is similar in that regard, but of course we have added a lot on top of that over the last two years. Yeah, if you think about how far developments come in the past two years, it's probably there's substantial um, innovation that's, that's happened in the past two years. Um, like runtime fields that we have been speaking about before, um, those were added since then, so you don't have the similar concept um, there. What are what are beats? How do these fit into the stack that we've been poking at so far? Right. So maybe people have heard of Logstash, which is more like the the ETL, so extract, transform, load tool. It's a bit like a a big hammer where you can get from data from lots of sources. You can transform it into various forms, and then you can write it out to multiple destinations. The most common one is probably Elasticsearch. Um, beats are like lightweight agents or shippers. They are written in Go, whereas Logstash is Ruby or JRuby by now. Um, so 
they are single purpose agents to forward information. So we have file beat, that's basically a thing that tails a log file and forwards it. Metric beat to collect metrics, packet beat for network data, um, audit beat for security events. So we have various shippers. Um, what we are kind of like switching to right now is since we had all of these different beats and then people had to in install multiple beats and manage those, um, we have some concept now called elastic agent, which is kind of like bundling them up together again. So you have one thing that you need to in install and run and that thing will then collect all the right data for you. We also have a, a central management platform if you want, um, where you can in the Elastic Stack say like, these are the integrations that I want to run on, on these agents and the, the pieces of information I want to collect that. There, that is called fleet. So we can manage a fleet of those agents running. Or you could do it the classic way by providing a YAML configuration file to those in the so-called standalone mode. But yeah, we have these different ways of getting data and we have kind of like gone from the big monolithic monolithic um, Logstash instance that is still there and needed for some scenarios, but in many cases you don't, to beats, which are single-purpose shippers. And now we're at agent, which tries to combine those single-purpose shippers and you can just enable the feature that you need. And it still runs beats under the hood, but you don't see this directly and you don't need to install or manage multiple binaries. And do those beats ship things straight into Elasticsearch or is Logstash more commonly? They can. So there are multiple outputs. So for example, beats could forward the data directly into Elasticsearch. And then there is a concept called ingest uh, in Elasticsearch where we could also do some parsing and transformation. Um, there is even a more extended concept of that in Logstash. So the beats could forward to Logstash as well. Or you could, for example, forward the data to uh, Kafka queue if you, you have that and want that. So there are multiple outputs um, that you could use and whatever is kind of like the right combination for you. When you were talking about these beats, you're saying, oh, we have this and we have that and you ship it off, it gets transformed and loaded. Sounds a lot, and you're talking about metrics and sounds a lot like things that we all use on a day-to-day. -day. I'm thinking about uh, Datadog and the Splunks of the world and, and things like this. So what do you think that Elasticsearch is palatable enough for folks who are like in a small organization that say, listen, we really want the capability to do custom metrics. We really want the capability to get any logs, but we don't want to like pay an arm and a leg and a newborn child for Datadog. Is this something that you would recommend people to even look into? Because I think there is a, a scared factor that most developers can kind of have when they're like, new stack. Oh, and it's Java based under the hood and people go, ah, leave me out of it. Yeah, I mean, depending on how much you want to see, since we also provided this as a cloud service, you could just get Elasticsearch and Kibana as a cloud service and then you only see an API and you don't even know what it's running under the hood. Um, because I doubt people really know what Datadog is running under the hood because that's, a, from what I know, also a zoo of tools that you would not want to manage yourself. So I, I wouldn't be concerned about that part because if you want to, you can totally run that on-prem, but we do take care of that for you so we can provide it as a platform. And I mean, where Elastic can generally came from that we were providing these, these tools as a platform and give you maximum flexibility, and we're still doing that, so you have these options. But over the last few years, we have also invested a lot more into those solutions. And the three solutions we focus on is observability, security, and enterprise search. Don't be scared by the enterprise in search. It's just building a higher level search platform around it. But we have these three solutions. We do all of those. 
they all use the same platform, but we have more of a solution or a, a digestible way to do things that you just activate. Um, I'm not sure it's 100% um, datadog like yet, but the, the idea is that it should be very simple to use and, and build on while still giving you the flexibility of a platform, whereas Datadog has one way to do things and then you follow the Datadog way. Um, whereas if you want, if you say like, oh, we have this use case and that other use case, and then we build something custom, all of those are covered by the Elastic Stack. I think one great sway of uh, power that gives you is uh, Datadog or other seams that we'll find out there. They really figure out how to charge. There's like a lot of ways that you can cut that cake. And uh, if you're able to have a custom implementation, you can really say, you know, we want to just do a lot in these custom metrics. I'm sure you can lower that bill and you can still avoid having to run your own infrastructure if you can. This is like the happy medium between them two. Yes. So our general approach is very different. So we are not agent-based like Datadog. We're not volume-based like Splunk. Um, we're like, our pricing is basically, or how we build stuff is on the Elasticsearch resources mostly. Um, so for example, depending on the pricing, um, that's what you would pay for both in the cloud service, um, or if you want to run it on, on-prem with some of the commercial features or support. Um, so it is how many and how large are those Elasticsearch or Kibana resources that you have. And we don't care about like how many metric series it is, how much volume it is how many agents you run. It's just like, can this cluster handle all the data that you need to send and search in a reasonable time frame? And that is what you need. So it, it gives you more flexibility if you say like, oh, I want to have a lot of agents, but they don't send that much data. It will not cost an arm and a leg because you can just configure like what is the right value balance or how long do I want to retain the data? Um, so you have a lot more knobs to turn, which sometimes almost works against us because it's like, Datadog is so simple. Oh, just enable this and then it just does everything for you, but you don't have the flexibility to tune cost or, or performance. It's it's the package. And I think sometimes that's kind of like almost scary or adds a bit of overhead, but it gives you more flexibility. So if you want to have that flexibility, I think we are giving you a lot more choices. But of course, choice has a little overhead in terms of understanding what are your choices and then implementing them. Right, you could get into uh, choice paralyzation, but... Yeah, no, I just want to say we try to have that a bit more automated with the solutions. Um, so, for example, in observability, that there is a, a template and it has a default retention of data and everything and how, how it moves. Um, but you have the option to, to tune that down to saying, like, I want to retain my data only like my logs for, I don't know, or traces for 48 hours because after that, doesn't matter anymore and I don't need to keep it. Or you could say like for compliance reasons, I need to keep this for a year. It's all possible. Um, and it will also drastically uh, mean like what you need in resources. Um, you have the option, but again, option is always has its, co its cost, I think. And if, if you mentioned you have like an example in a template and stuff, and I just want to quickly uh, plug that if people want to go try this out, there's resources for them to do like a cookie cutter, hello world, um, sort of end to end seam setup where you can say like, hey, turn on a beat, like put it in here, like to this endpoint, like turn on Kibana, you can like send this query and you can see the stuff's connected. Yeah. I mean, if you just want to see the end result, we have demo.elastic.co where you can just it basically is Kibana, and you can just see what's happening and you can play around with it. And um, so this is like the working setup. 
if you want to run this yourself, you can just download our, all of our products and run it. Or you can start a, a free trial of the cloud service where you get uh, Elasticsearch, Kibana, and like both for enterprise search or, or tracing, you get the, the, the server side components as well. Um, so you could just easily run that and then you could install Agent, for example, or Beats to collect the right information and then forward it to that cluster to do that. But yeah, we try to easily show you what is possible and what you can get out of it. Awesome. And one more time, what was that link if people want to go visit? It was, it's demo.elastic.co. Perfect. Demo.elastic.co. Kind of switching gears a little bit, uh, Philip, if it's all right. At the beginning of the podcast, you were we were talking about how a lot of problems can be boiled down to a search problem. And I, I love these types of questions because I feel like there's people out there that are saying, listen, like if you reframe everything, it's ultimately like this game theory. Or, you know, if you think about it, and a lot of times it can change the way, you, even if you're not on board, it can change the way you think about the world a little bit. So I'm curious to pick your brain. Why do you think anything can be a text search problem? Because what about math? That's not a text search problem. Right. I So for us, search can be very structured or more unstructured and very structured could be um, it's more like a filter that that you know like just give me information from these users or these hosts um, or it could be just everything within this geo bound um, or like within a radius of a geo point so there is more structured search um, where it's like a hard filter it's more like a traditional database which is very black and white yes and no this data matches doesn't match and then you can combine that with full text search like the or free text search problems, which is not so much about like an exact match, but it's more about the, the relevancy. It's like if you search for a concept and there might be a synonym or it might be singular or plural or um, it, it might just be the adjective instead of the noun. So you, you're really searching more for a concept. That's where, where search is coming from. Um, or where there might be, I don't know, if somebody attacks your system, there might be a permutation. So they try to slightly change the input parameters so your exact match wouldn't kind of like catch that. So there is a lot of flexibility in that. And it's for us, we try to frame search as like it can be structured and can be more unstructured, free-flowing. And that combination is very powerful to, to find what you want. And depending on the type of data, it will be a mix or like a spectrum, for example, searching in Wikipedia to a large degree is very free text form, whereas security events, for example, might be highly structured because then you have like the user doing the action and the host or the, I don't know, the Kubernetes namespace in, in observability. So there can be a lot of structured pieces and we can do that hard filter on that, but then we can still go from there and say like, it's not just hard filters, but it's more like the concepts around that or give me anything that is is relevant to this problem. So it's really like a, a method of problem solving we're talking about here. It's how can we hash up our end goal into a bunch of little questions that we can use as filters to kind of get the information necessary. It's like playing a scavenger hunt, but you need to figure out like what list to go out to set forth with. Yeah. Um, it's, I think a lot of modern outages, for example, are often more like a murder mystery where you need to find the suspect, like what, what killed our system today. And we're trying to to play into that. Yeah, it's it's very much about framing it in that way. And then um, with the large amounts of data that we have today, it's often very hard to just say like just a hard filter or or just a subset of data. Uh, you really need the the search capabilities to to make all of that data accessible in a reasonable way. So you're you're mentioning some security threats. Um, 
you know, I can really imagine having this wide indexing available. It can be huge for, oh, what about this random thing? Like, is there a correlation here that we can sniff out? Like, who knows? I didn't tell it to index that, but it's it's widely useful to the organization. So where is Elasticsearch right now kind of foraying into the um, security and platform analysis world? Yeah, so security is, is a big area of investment since... I think for a long time, people were just using the classic ELK for security analysis. And then we saw the need to actually build more of a solution. And that it is like from Seam to SOAR to we, we are adding more and more tools to that, that box um, to, to make it easier for a security analyst, for example, to figure out what's going on. I always find it very interesting to see what our own team, for example, is doing. So when some widespread exploits hit, we collect a lot of the security data for a long time and then they look back like did anybody try that exploit on our systems or did we do we see anything since we have i don't know a year or whatever of, of security events stored so we can then see like even if something breaks weeks or months after um, it actually happened we can see like log for j log for shell um, for example um, did anybody run that against our services or did we have that problem in the past so we see it internally a lot or Recently, I saw, for example, a very clever approach and my colleagues are also using is because there's so many signals and there are so many low quality alerts potentially coming up or like low severity alerts that what they have built now is that they are basically having the unique alerts with low quality or low relevancy or severity and bundled together. So some, some simple thing might not be relevant on its own but if like five signals in combination appear suddenly then it might be from a security perspective it might be much more relevant so they basically have have built alerting on alerting so you have like low severity alerts but if like five unique ones appear within a very short amount of time then it's the signal that something is happening so for example if one specific user account or host for example encounters multiple ones of these it's like a much more interesting signal suddenly and for that, we need that wide search base that we can just freely slice and dice a large amount of data to actually find all of that. That's fascinating. You know, that reminds me of is like LSTM neural networks and how they learn on, on a sequence sort of. Um, have you seen any use cases of people using Elasticsearch for deep learning? Because I mean, that, these are two disparate sort of like areas of focus. I mean, I think... Deep learning is sometimes a bit separate. I don't think I have a very good story or use case where people used it. It might be somewhere in the, the data collection layer and then to feed it and um, more in that story. But I, I think that's that's a different application on top of it. And for example, the what we are doing in our product is more like we, we have like the uh, supervised and unsupervised machine learning to some degree. So it, unsupervised could be you have anomaly detection, it just learns what is happening. Like you have like, a, this is the number of users on your system um, and those th type of things, or you could bring a custom model to it. But we would, you would need to bring or develop that model elsewhere and you could bring it to our, our stack then. But we would not do the, the neural network itself. But you could, you could, there is a like a service layer of plugin architecture here where you could bring in your own indexing capabilities if you so wished. Yes, so you can bring models that you have developed outside um, with common tooling. Um, for example, Python is very big on, on machine learning. You could develop a model there and then could bring that model to our stack to, to run it, yes. 
And thinking about the security thing, um, there was a few years of my life where I actually worked as a backend engineer at Carbon Black. And we used Elasticsearch to basically ingest everything. Everything that happened, and it was it was incredible. Like you could feed it into this platform and, and kind of say, like, hey, I want like all every single time like the temp directory like got accessed. Like we never told it to do that. It just had it somehow. And it it really opened up the world into like at ad hoc security. Right now, you see it coming in. You can like change your index, you can do the query. It, it was really remarkable, honestly. I think the security field for Elasticsearch is still being explored and it's really cool to see what's happening right now. We do hope so. And I mean, like we discussed, we are trying to add like the higher level services on top, but a lot of people have just built that on their own in, in the classic Elk way, um, which worked surprisingly well. And then I don't want to say we grudgingly followed to, to build a tool around it or, or a solution around it, but we at some point had to agree that, well, Maybe we can make everybody's lives around that easier and provide more tooling around it. But yeah, it's it has a lot of potential and we're trying to tap into that more and make it even easier. Well, I feel like the way these things usually go is uh, private sector, they see the opportunity, they build like four different versions, the companies get sold for a bazillion million dollars and then like the open source community slowly catches up and that takes over. That's We see the cycle happen time and time again. Security might be different though because you get the handshakey thing going on um but keep i i pray you guys keep doing it because it would be it'd be awesome to have more open source tools and you know service layer tooling for for normal people to use even for their own stuff right i i come more from the ops and dev world so security sometimes can feel a bit foreign because it's like very different processes or approaches to some degree right yeah mostly mostly from the devops side for me too i know there's like a lot of compliance and lawyers and it's it can get hairy on the security side on devops you must there's has to be an amazing use case that we can talk about really quick for devops in terms of uh something that another scene couldn't do that maybe you're able to focus in on using Elasticsearch in your own custom beats or whatever it might be in terms of observability now yeah in terms of observability or um self-healing systems or you know up the devops type type of tree trunk right i i feel like self-healing is always a a complicated topic because it's sometimes oversold strongly and um i don't think that the humans will be fully replaced it's more like better tooling support will open new doors um because you have all of the data and then you can find the relevant one so one thing that we've been doing lately um um and there's this term AI ops. Um, but for me, it always stands for actionable insight because it's not AI solving your problem, but you want to have some insight that you can actually react on and to fix your systems. So for me, AI ops stands for actionable insight, and that's what we're trying to do. So for example, we, we have these um, higher level services built uh, on top of like the data that we have collected, where, where you say like, um, there is the latency is spiking or the errors are spiking. And then you could say, like, show me why. And then we basically look at the data and then we say, like, there is this strong correlation. It's like this one endpoint is slow or this one endpoint is throwing errors or it's just users from this country or this specific browser, if it's, I don't know, a React application or whatever. So we basically take the, the data and then we, we look at one specific subset and say it strongly correlates with this problem. 
And that creates very, very good actionable insights because you suddenly have an automatic way to see like what is the correlation of what it, where the problem is coming from. And you can then figure out like what is going on there. It, it doesn't replace the human. It's, it's not necessarily self-healing. Maybe you could script something on top of that, but it has a good way. And we have like a calculation that says like there's a, a 95% correlation of, of this error spike with this specific endpoint or this one service or, or this user sub-segment. Um, and that allows you to, to then quickly figure out what is going on. And for me, that's kind of like the actionable insight point that um, it's not AI that magically fixes what's going on, but it's a human support uh, to, to show you what is relevant and then you can can take the right steps. I mean, you're drinking from a fire hose when you're typically trying to fix something. Um, you're in a panic mode. And at the end of the day, you a lot of times you do need a human to sort of like, do you even want the system to do it yourself? That's another like whole philosophical question we could get into. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, it, there, there might be scenarios where this just works and, oh, you reboot the service and the restart fixed everything, um, which... That makes me uncomfortable. Nobody likes having that happen. You restart it and it just works and you're like, hmm. Yeah, but I, I mean, if it at least if it gets you out of the, the thick for now, I mean, there, there could be something where you you bump the service twice and if that doesn't resolve it, then you wake up a human in the middle of the night. Maybe, maybe that works for some scenarios, but it might make it also much worse. For example, if you have data and you, you write it inconsistently or whatever and then bumping the service or it, it cannot keep up with writing the data and then you might lose data that's only in memory or, or whatever. There are, I'm sure there are scenarios where you could make it a lot worse by any automated action, which doesn't mean that humans don't also sometimes make it worse um, with their actions, but um, that's a, a different problem then. And yeah, I think the, where the space, for example, in observability is generally heading is that collecting the information, I don't want to say it's a solved problem, but it's like that is the baseline and just getting to the data is, is there and, and good. But where the, the real value or innovation is, is like on these higher level services to say like, I see this correlation and to tell a human, look at this correlation, this looks super weird, or this is where you should start focusing on, especially when you're woken up in the middle of the night, you don't want to look through a thousand events by hand and then figure out what might be the reason here, but you might have want to get these like starting points or like, this looks interesting or relevant, um, start here. And I think that's where generally the, the innovation in a lot of spaces, both observability but also security is coming from that you you try to, to have these higher level toolings or support for humans there without replacing the human because I don't think that's really realistic. Or we're trying to increase productivity here, right? Um, or at the end of the day, yeah. I always say it's like the support for humans because I don't think we'll be able to to replace everybody by little bots anytime soon. Yeah, I don't think that's a an, an uncommon or hot take, and um, we, there, there's a there's a lot of uh, I don't know unique thought that needs to go into like these sort of actionable insights, like you're saying. I've I've meet plenty of people that say, you know, we're gonna get to a system that's gonna it's gonna heal itself, gonna do it do it all. But I don't know. I tend to lean more in your boat <laughs> as well. Like we need to learn from ourselves. Like we're an evolving like body of of developers and creators and like the what is actionable is also going to change as time goes on so yeah i mean for me it's like every time i have to talk to a chatbot i'm like no this is this is not going to work out yeah um, this is unacceptable yeah, yeah this is just like even if you 
kind of use the right keywords, it might still go off totally the wrong way. And I'm like, for a chatbot, maybe if it goes south, that then I'm just unhappy. But if you try to automatically fix a service, then you might make it much worse. So, um, yeah. If you're enjoying the podcast and you want to hear more about Elasticsearch or other open source creators, tune in to PodRocket. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and a bunch of other places. And we hope to see you around. Let's move on to if people wanted to get involved with the community or if they wanted to see what was coming up next or what you specifically are working on, Philip, what's what's coming? We have the the history of, for us, everything is GitHub. So you can see the pull requests, you can see the GitHub issues where we discuss what is coming up next. We're always a bit cautious about roadmap because priorities shift or we find new opportunities or for a specific reason, something depends on something else or could be done a better way. And then we don't want to release something in a poor state. So we are very cautious about not promising specific features or dates too much because we just want to do the right thing and and not like be held to our promise also i think our mentality to that is um you win very little by promising something you just get a lot of anger if you don't stand by your promises though you might have good reasons for not fulfilling those um so we're trying to avoid that um and we're very focused on shipping the right stuff as quickly as possible which i i think is one of the interesting shifts that we as a company have done that Initially, we were very focused on, on major releases, and then a lot of features would come in a major release. But now, for us, major releases are more like a, the, these are the breaking changes, like the cleanup. But releasing features is very decoupled from that. So it might almost be hard to keep up with all our releases just because we are shipping so many features in each minor release. And for example, the, right now we're at 8.4. Um, 8.5 will come out pretty soon. Um, but even in the 7.x release, which was going on for two years, we shipped a ton of features over the years. So it's, it's really the, the roadmap is very dynamic and we're just trying to ship as fast as possible without being held to a, a roadmap that we set maybe like a year in advance. And then for specific reasons, we might not follow through with that. Totally understandable. I mean, I feel like that's one of the best developer roadmaps you could give somebody. You know what you gave? You gave honesty. And you said, we're going to listen to the community. What's like? What's a better roadmap than that And at the end of the day? Yeah, and I'm, I mean, it's very important to listen to the community. I, I just think that you also need to be a bit careful um, to not only follow what the community asks for. Because um, if you ask people around, I don't know, 1880 or something like that what do they want they would have probably said they would they want a faster horse and if you just follow through with that you would never have invented the car because you kind of like you need to take another step or it's kind of like sometimes you need a an unexpected change or something that maybe is not the, the next logical step if you just try to follow the logical steps you you might miss out on these jumps of innovation so sometimes there might be something that the community asks for but we are looking at it and then say like well yeah i can kind of see that but we see, we see a chance for this jump, and then we want to make this jump. Uh, so that I, I think there is, there is a balance of like following like the logical path of what people are asking for, and also kind of like being the driver of innovation um, to see what's kind of like moving you ahead further. Right on. Well, I I also noticed we're already like over time, but Philip, thank you for coming on the podcast and. Hopefully educating some people about Elasticsearch who are maybe confused about, is it a stack? Is it a service? Like, how do I get into it? May oh, before we end, if people wanted to hear more from you, 
Yeah. So you are you on Twitter? Are you on Medium? Where where can we find more content? Uh, I am on I am on Twitter. So if you take my last name K R E W N and you rotate the letters by thirteen, rot thirteen for the ones who are very old, you end up at my Twitter handle, which is Xera. That is like the best <laughs> Twitter handle explanation I've ever had. Which is pretty unique. And I very intentionally, I'm not on Medium. I have Xera.net as my okay. domain because I'm I'm very cautious about platforms coming and going and I want to to end my content, but also like the user tracking and everything myself. Uh, but yeah, I'm generally Xera on GitHub, Twitter, the web, and everywhere else. Awesome. Well, yeah, thanks again. And hope to have you back in the future where we can talk about some of the more exciting things that you and the team have been developing. Thanks a lot for having me. And yeah, if there are any questions, happy to get pinged on whatever medium you prefer. And yeah, thanks a lot for hosting. <laughs>